Support for today's show comes from Locker Room, the best place to talk sports. Make sure to follow me on Locker Room at Jake Reiner, and I'll invite you to chat on my weekly baseball room, uniquely titled Meeting on the Mound. Download Locker Room for free on the Apple App Store today and join the conversation. Welcome to Meeting on the Mound. I'm Jake Reiner. Baseball is back, everyone. Wow. I feel like it was equally a long time and just as equally a short amount of time since the Dodgers won the World Series. And we went through spring training pretty quickly, and now baseball is back. Getting to see games on every single day of the week. And at any time during the day, because there are certainly some start times, some weird start times now that they have these seven inning double headers. Uh, there are just baseball is on all the time. It's fantastic. And we didn't really understand, or at least I didn't, that while watching baseball last year in 2020 without fans and then going back to fans, having them not, you know, not at full capacity but somewhat capacity, just the difference in watching a baseball game on TV is unbelievable. I never thought that the fans would mean so much watching it on television. Obviously, going to a game, you weren't allowed to do that, but watching it on TV, at first it was shocking because there was cardboard cutouts in in the stands and you didn't really understand, you know, kind of how it would go then they would pipe in that crowd noise and and especially especially during the playoffs the crowd noise was insanely way too loud and you couldn't even hear the broadcasters but then after a while you sort of got used to it you didn't know what you missed until this season rolled around and you started seeing fans in the stands and hearing it and just hearing that low hum of the crowd as people are chit-chatting, whether it's about what happened over the weekend, whether it's about what's happening on the field, people eating and, and hanging out with one another, just a really great sight to see. Now, of course, there are a lot of stadiums out there that are doing this pod seating, uh, Dodger Stadium, one of them. But then there are a few stadiums like the ones in Texas where kind of all the rules are going out the window. Um, They look pretty packed. Uh, Talking about Globe Life Field in Arlington and Minute Maid Park in Houston, those stadiums look pretty darn packed. And while it's a little disconcerting because we are still in the middle of a pandemic, I will say that it is nice to see fans out there cheering for their favorite players. And I'll get into the standing ovations that we've seen so far uh, during the first week of action. But I just think it's cool to see fans back. We are back to 162 games, the grind. Um, There's still a lot of people out there that are overreacting about everything. Uh, Even though we've got a long season ahead of us, people were freaking out about the Red Sox starting 0-3. Well, they've gone, you know, 6-3 or 7-3 since then. So people need to, you know, just relax. It's a long season and things tend to even out, which is what we've seen so far over the first week. But this first week in change hasn't been without controversy. And the one thing I want to start off with is instant replay. Now we've had two really controversial endings to games that have occurred so far, and I want to touch on it. 
Number one, instant replay. When it was expanded in 2014 and modified in 2015, it allowed managers the ability to challenge calls on the field. So fair foul, out safe, put out, trap, etc. You can't replay balls and strikes, which I think is fine. But let's get into the controversy here that happened. The first one, we had the Mets and the Marlins. They were tied at three in the ninth. This was the Mets home opener at City Field. And keep in mind, this was uh, a long time coming for Mets fans because at the start of the season, they were supposed to play the Nationals. The Nationals got a bunch of positive COVID-19 tests back. So they were a little delayed. There was a lot of anticipation. Francisco Lindor is a Met. And so this was supposed to be an exciting, momentous time for the Mets. And they ended up winning the game. But what happened at the end was just egregious. So like I said, tied up at 3-3 in the ninth. The bases were loaded. Michael Conforto was at the plate. And the pitcher threw it down the middle, pretty much over the middle of the plate. And Michael Conforto leaned out and got hit on his elbow guard. And the slider in there, strike three. Hit him. Hit him. Hit him. Pitch. Hit him. Hit Conforto. He made no effort to get out of the way. It was a strike, but he didn't move. And Don Mattingly is going to come out and argue the call with the home plate umpire, Ron Culpa. The ball hit him, and it was going to be a strike. Yep. So the Mets are celebrating. The Marlins are arguing. And unless this is overruled, the Mets have themselves a 3-2 win as Conforto is nicked by a pitch. Now, by rule, you have to make an effort to get out of the way. And that's what the Marlins are arguing. This is a strike, yep. and he gets hit. Look at that. Oh, you oh, can't do that. No. You, they have totally got they a case They got to bring here. it back. Totally have yes. a case. They're going to. It's he, absolute. It's he stuck be, his elbow right into that pitch. It's going to be strike three. Strike and the three, umpires two are out. conferring, and let's see. And the plate umpire was a little confused at first because it looked like he was about to call it a strike. Was going to signal strike, then signaled that Conforto got hit and the Mets won in walk-off fashion. You couldn't challenge that play, unfortunately, because you can't challenge intent. You can only challenge whether or not the guy got hit. And in fact, he did get hit, so there was no question there. But later on, the home plate umpire, Ron Culpa, was asked, "What would you have, would you have done anything differently now looking back at the play? And he said, the guy was hit by the pitch in the strike zone. I should have called him out infuriating if you're a Marlins fan, especially an up-and-coming Miami Marlins team trying to make a name for for themselves in the crowded NL East. It's going to be a dogfight this year, I can already tell. And to lose a game like that in that fashion when your pitcher essentially struck out Michael Conforto and instead is awarded first base in essentially the game after that is egregious. There was one point that I wanted to make that... Greg Amsinger, who's a commentator on MLB Network, pointed out, which is, why not change instant replay so that in the ninth inning or maybe even in the the seventh inning or later, all of these rules of you can't challenge this, can't challenge that, let's, let's keep the rule that you can't challenge balls and strikes, but let's open it up to the possibility of looking at a play like that and determining whether or not Michael Conforto made any gesture 
to get out of the way of the pitch because that is the rule, right? You cannot get hit by a pitch if you don't make an at least an attempt to get out of the way. In fact, he leaned over the plate into the strike zone and was hit. So to me, you got to look at that, you got to look at that play and you got to and you, it, it's clear as day that he leaned over the plate and got hit. And of course, at that point in the game, the game is over. There's no more there are no more opportunities for the Marlins to win because it was in the bottom of the ninth and they were on the road. So there has to be some sort of adjustment from Major League Baseball on on instant replay. The second instance that I want to talk about, which was more recent, on Sunday, April 11th. This was the primetime game, Sunday night baseball on ESPN. We've got the Braves hosting the Phillies at in Atlanta. Alec Bohm was on third base with less than two outs. Didi Gregorius of the Phillies hits a fly ball to shallow left field. Marcelo Zuna of the Braves camps under it, makes the catch, and throws a, you know, a nine hopper to the plate. It wasn't a great throw, but he got the ball to the plate. It was a close bang-bang play, and the umpire called Bohm safe at the plate. Now, they are allowed to challenge that play, which they did, and they went to the replay booth. I don't understand that with all of the angles, the slow motion, everything, you could look at that play and say he was safe. The guy didn't touch the plate at all, not at any point during the course of that play. Didn't even go back to touch the plate after the play had occurred. At no, He still hasn't touched the plate until this day. That, to me, was the most, even more egregious than the Michael Conforto one, because you can actually challenge that play, and there was actual pretty indisputable evidence that he was out. Now, here's one thing that Major League Baseball can do to improve this instant replay, which is to take out whatever the call was on the field. Don't consider that. Why why should you? If you are challenging the call of a human being on the field, meaning the umpire, and you're challenging whether or not that person got the call right, why are you even considering what they what they called on the field? Why should that have anything to do with what you're watching on a screen in the replay center uh, in New Jersey or in New York or wherever they are? on the They're on the East Coast, damn it. You should not even consider that. Just look at the play from all the angles and determine whether or not you can call him out or safe. And I think because there may have been a, you know, a 0.01% chance that he touched the plate, they decided to go with the call in the field, which was safe. It's just not right. It's just not right. And the Braves ended up losing that game. They couldn't come back in the following, in the bottom of the ninth, and they couldn't, they couldn't uh, come back. And they lost 7-6. to six. It's ridiculous. It's so upsetting to have something like instant replay and still get it wrong. How, how is that possible? We got to do better. This episode, along with all of our episodes, is brought to you by Locker Room. Now, Locker Room is a, is a fast-growing social media platform that everybody is jumping on these days to talk sports, but we're trying to make the baseball group grow on Locker Room, so make sure you follow me on there. Uh, I have a 
I have two shows that you should listen to, one of them being The Incline, the other one being Meeting on the Mound with Jake Reiner. And this week, we are going to preview the one of 19 times that the Dodgers and Padres will face off. These are the two juggernauts in the NL West, and we are going to talk about everything uh, that will come with this series. Maybe some fireworks, we'll see. Uh, but also, we're going to talk about that Fernando Tatis Jr. injury, as it looks like he may be back. So that is this week on Locker Room. Make sure to be on the lookout for our Dodgers Padres preview on Friday, April 16th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. That is 9 p.m. Eastern time if you want to do the math. And hopefully we'll see you there. You can come and interact with us, talk with us, chat with us, whatever you want. Make sure you follow us uh, to get notified when we go live in the future. All right, moving on. I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed my ranting about this subject and maybe you're tired of me uh, being so negative. So let's flip the script a little bit and talk about some of the positives that we've seen so far throughout this young season. One of them being Joe Musgrove, the first San Diego Padres pitcher to throw a no-hitter in franchise history. He did it on Friday, April 9th. He struck out 10 guys. I think the best part about this story is the fact that Joe Musgrove is a San Diego native. Grew up in El Cajon, California, which is in San Diego County. For him to become the first San Diego Padres pitcher to throw a no-hitter is a great story. Also added to that that he grew up a Padres fan. His favorite pitcher was Jake Peavy. He wears the number 44 because of Jake Peavy. Jake Peavy was a dominant right-handed pitcher in his day for the Padres. The other cool thing about the the Musgrove no-hitter was that his catcher, Victor Caratini, also caught the last no-hitter in Major League Baseball before Joe Musgrove, which was Alec Mills of the Cubs in 2020. And Caratini came over with Hugh Darvish in in that trade in the offseason because Caratini was or is Darvish's personal catcher. Well, I think now he'll probably be Musgrove's personal catcher from here on out. Also a cool fact that before Musgrove, no Padres pitcher had ever taken a no-hitter into the ninth. There have been a few eighth-inning guys and seventh-inning guys, but no one's taken a a no-hitter into the ninth. So so he was already, even if he didn't complete the no-hitter, he was in uncharted territory. And for context sake, Padres pitchers have thrown 21 complete game one hitters, but never a no hitter. And Joe Musgrove did that. Also, Padres last franchise without a no hitter. Now they have it. Now all franchises can say that they have at least one no hitter. The other pitcher I want to talk about is Jacob deGrom. Jacob deGrom is arguably the best pitcher in baseball. You can make arguments for Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer, or... Uh, even, you know, Walker Bueller, Trevor Bauer. I mean, you could make arguments for all these guys, but but Jacob deGrom is the only starting pitcher in the last couple of years that has been in the top three in wins above replacement in 2018 and 2019. So he is consistently one of the best, if not the best pitcher in baseball. The problem with Jacob deGrom is that the Mets don't win with him, which is a crazy thing to think about. He, on Saturday, he pitched eight innings, 
gave up one run and struck out 14 people. And he got the loss. He got the loss for that. On Monday, April 5th, before that, in his first start, he pitched six innings, gave up no runs, struck out seven, got the no decision, and the Mets eventually lost. These are some crazy numbers. Since 2018, the Mets are now 36 and 42 in games that DeGrom has started. And over that stretch, he has the best ERA of any pitcher at 2.06. The next three guys, Hinjin Ryu, 2.33, Justin Verlander, 2.56, Garrett Cole, 2.67. All of those guys have winning records over that stretch. DeGrom's the only one who has a losing record, but the best ERA. So if any, if you don't take away anything from this podcast or this episode, you should know that wins and losses really don't tell you how good a pitcher is because this guy goes out there and shoves and he never gets any run support and the Mets don't win for some reason. And to that point of run support, over his career, when the Mets give him anywhere from zero to two runs of support, DeGrom is 6-35. and 35. So they really don't give him a lot of support. And then when you increase that to three to five runs, his record shoots to 29 and 12. So obviously the missing link is the Mets offense. And I don't know why they don't score for him, but that's just historically been the case with him is that when he's on the mound, they don't win, which is a crazy thing. And it it makes no sense. I mean, for a guy who has a rookie of the year, He's got two Cy Youngs, and as I mentioned, finished in the top three in war in 2018 and 2019. I don't get what happens when he pitches. Do the Mets just like say, okay, we don't have to go to work today? We don't have to swing the bat? I mean, it's it's, it's insane. I I don't know what that stat tells you. It doesn't tell you anything about DeGrom. It tells you more about the the Mets and like, come on, guys, let's get let's get him some run support and 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 win some ballgames here. A couple of other stories I want to touch on. Uh, Trey Mancini is back. He is the Baltimore Orioles' first baseman. And the story with him is that he missed the entire 2020 season due to stage 3 colon cancer. He beat the disease. He completed six months of chemotherapy and returned to full baseball activity this spring without any restrictions. He's also become a spokesperson for colorectal cancer awareness because of his story. And he's an inspiration. So I think no matter what happens this season, he's probably going to win comeback player of the year. If he doesn't have a good offensive season, I would still give him the comeback player of the year award, but maybe pair it with a guy who did have good uh, offensive numbers or good numbers as a pitcher. But it was great to see him come back uh in front of the fans in Baltimore, get a standing ovation. And that's what I was talking about at the top is that the standing ovation for guys like Trey Mancini, who deserves so much and deserves all of that. It was just cool to see him get that coming back from what he had to go through. Yeah, very gracious of the Red Sox, Richard Vasquez out in front of the plate. Give the fans the opportunity. And every Red Sox on the infield slapping their glove, uh, cheering for Trey Mancini. Wow, that, that's pretty special. 
Wish them all the best. Hopefully the Orioles have a decent season. They're probably not going to, but especially I hope that um, Trey Mancini has a great year. So far though, not great. Two home runs, two doubles, eight RBIs, only a buck 89. But the fact that he's playing baseball after going through that is already a victory. A couple of other things I want to talk about. Your man Mercedes, the rookie for the Chicago White Sox. He started the season going eight for eight, which was pretty sick. Um, Zach McKinstry is tearing it up for the Dodgers. He's kind of stepped into that Kike all-purpose role, uh, Kike Hernandez all-purpose role there with the Dodgers. But the the Dodgers have been a little banged up. Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts have been out. So McKinstry stepped in. He actually, uh, at, at the recording of this podcast, leads the Dodgers in home runs. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then Colton Wong, who was a, a second baseman for his entire career with the St. Louis Cardinals up until this season, he signed a, as a free agent with the Brewers, and he came back to St. Louis, got a standing ovation from the crowd, and he got teared up in the box. He had to step out and wipe tears away from his face. I just thought that was such a cool moment, and a moment that could not have happened without fans. So that's that's what I want to make. Uh, it's one of, that's the point I want to make, is that the fans really do matter. Whether you're at the ballpark or you're watching it on TV, it just makes the moment. And it made the moment for Colton Wong, and I thought that was cool. All right, finally today, I want to point out some teams that I am going to keep an eye on for the rest of the season. One of them is a team that I hype up all the time, which is the Seattle Mariners. Now, the Mariners, uh, as of right now, going into Tuesday... Um, of this week are five and four and they are third in the AL West. Actually, I think they may be six and four now as, as of this recording, but they're six and four third in the AL West. And that is without their, you know, reigning rookie of the year, Kyle Lewis, but Kyle Seeger, Ty France, Mitch Haniger have carried the offense so far. And they've also been able to be successful without a successful Marco Gonzalez, who's supposed to be their ace. He's pitched absolutely terribly. And I may have to have a few words with Marco myself because he's hurting my fantasy team. And we got to get him back on the right track because I'm not giving up on him just yet. I'm really high on him, um, but hopefully he can figure things out. In the meantime, Yusei Kikuchi has carried the load as Pretty much the only good starting pitcher, uh, although Justice Sheffield on Tuesday had a pretty decent day. Uh, bullpen has been solid. So keep an eye on the Mariners um, because I think the AL West is going to be a little weird. Um, the A's have gotten off to a slow start and they were my pick to win the AL West. So I think it's going to be a, a little bit of a dogfight there at the end. And because I feel that uh, both wildcard teams will most likely come out of the AL East, If they want to make the playoffs, they're going to have to win the division. And I'm talking about the Mariners. So keep an eye on them. And lastly, I want to talk about the Yankees. Everyone's hyping up the Yankees. They're, you know, they're going to be, they're going to run away with this division, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? They're last in the AL East right now. And I know it's only nine games and I know that they're one game under 500, but I'm not, and I'm not going to say I predicted this, but I am going to say that I have, that I have raised questions about their pitching especially their starting rotation. And guess what's been the weak link? Their starting rotation. I mean, I mean, you know, aside from Garrett Cole, they've been terrible. Uh, they had to, you know, DF, he's been bad. 
Um, Luke Voigt's been injured. Aaron Judge is not fully healthy. Corey Kluber isn't great. Um, Jamison Tyon's been all right. Um, but uh, fortunately for the Yankees, their bullpen has been elite. And uh, their offense is good enough to, to carry without guys like Voigt or Aaron Judge at full health. But I don't know, man. I think, you know, I think they're going to have to make some moves at the deadline to, to shore up that starting pitching because it's, it's not looking good and we're only, you know, nine, 10 games into the season. So that just about does it here on Meeting on the Mound. Hopefully you enjoyed my rantings and ravings, my Jake's takes. Uh, this has been really fun. I hope to do more of these throughout the season as more news stories pop up. Also, you can go back and listen to any of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We've had a number of very prominent guests, a couple of great episodes that you can go back and listen to anytime you want. Um, but yeah, also f- uh, follow us uh, at M-O-T-M underscore Jake Reiner, uh, meeting on the mound underscore Jake Reiner on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be right back.